Hello, friends. Welcome to Alf He Bonus Bonus, the episode of Alf He Bunga Bunga, where we take your questions, comments, and especially criticisms. I'm with Philip Cunliffe and George Horror, and I'm still Alex Hoekely. Hi, guys. Hey, hey, how's it going? Uh, quite well. I mean, actually terrible, but um, putting on a brave face Why? for the podcast. You just have to say, you have to say, it's going, I'm fine, it's going all right, even though inside yeah. you're... Dying. Slowly dying. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Yeah, I've got a knee problem, so it means that I can't even run off my like neuroses, uh, COVID-inflicted neuroses. So you could hop, presumably. I could <laughs> hop on, yeah, um, and just end up very like mis misbalanced, I guess. Um, anyway, so in this episode, what we're going to do is, uh, if this is your first time with us, go through your questions, comments, and criticisms uh, of episodes over the past two to three months or one to two months. And then you're going to hear 35 minutes from the interview with Lee Jones, which came out last week, where we discussed COVID and state failure. And we discussed in a lot more depth with Lee, some of these questions. Um, so that's a clip that you're going to hear. Um, there's some interesting stuff on comparisons between the UK and Korea's response. Korea seems to be one of the one of the better performers i guess uh in terms of covid so that's coming up in just a bit but uh, let's go to your comments and questions and criticisms uh and let's start off with a quick uh, with a criticism this was uh actually a comment made in response to the last alpha bonus bonus um which also featured some bonus content with Catherine liu on the pmc anyway this was very specific this was about the listeners questions bit from tom l who said if this were an episode of friends it would be called the one where phil acts like an irascible tit um so that's a message to phil try not to be uh, an irascible tit i really um i i always do my best not to be at least for alpha bonus and bonus so. you really do try it's do just try. surprising how little yeah. um that um, that effort translates into reality yeah. and i try if i'm an irascible tit it's you know mainly to george and alex so you know that's i think I, I deserve a pass the for most that important from people so. I wonder what Tom L or, or which friends characters Tom L was uh, thinking that oh, the three no. of us are. We, we yeah, and the we other don't one need to was, get into that. We could rename we, we, <laughs> we could rename all of our episodes like the friends episode oh, style. The Jesus one where Christ. Stud does this, the one with the I quit. I'm out. That's it. I'm done. Uh, let's move on really quickly. Um, so we're going to get into some of these comments about the PMC, and there's some really interesting and critical ones. Brandon Desiderio says. Um, mentioned C. Derek Varn, um, who's a guy who does stuff with zero books. Um, he seems to have a worthwhile counter to the rise of the PMC as a concept on the left. He argues it's not a coherent class formation. Um, and it's, this certainly seems to speak to the sort of higher versus lower PMC distinction Catherine you brought up. Um, Daniel L. also took issue with uh, PMC as a concept, feeling it's a category to be too broad to be all that useful. Where, for example, do casual and short-term contract precarious workers fit into it? Um, Tom, another comment from Tom L is that he feels that PMC isn't is um, not useful, especially when you extend it to all white-collar workers. So, low-level office workers are neither professional, managerial, and not really even a class, strictly speaking. It's more just a job category. So, really, what's what's wrong with the Marxist definition of class? You know, the working class are those who have nothing to sell but their own labor power. Um, so, PMC ends up sounding like just shorthand for middle-class liberals, who I happen to find annoying at the moment. Um, we've got another question also related to this, but we'll come back to that. Let's just discuss these. Um, 
I'm, I'm so, kind of sympathetic so, to some of these points, but go ahead. Bill. Yeah, me too. But well, there's going to, you know, so what's wrong with the Marxist definition of class, the working class being those who have nothing to sell but their own labor power? I mean, that is the overwhelming majority of the population, right? That is the definition of the proletariat. So, I mean, if the, con if the complaint is it's too broad, then that could equally be turned against the idea of the proletariat, right? I mean, that in itself is an enormous kind of, um, you know, it's an enormous kind of sweeping characterization of what most people in fact are in developed economies, at least. So, I mean, I am sympathetic, but I think, you know, on the other hand, also there's an kind of, there seems to be uh, some of what's being said seems to be this expectation for um, impermeable, um, impermeable kind of categories, which, can't really doesn't seem to me that those are useful or even really possible in these kinds of social scientific discussions it is a broad category but then again it's a broad strata of the population it is a category that's fuzzy at the edges but indeed you know this is a demographic that's fuzzy at the edges i don't think it's necessarily incoherent simply because it can't incorporate all the different kind of functions and jobs that um, we might wish to put into it um, and I think, I mean, you know, I mean, we talk in terms of um, fractions of different classes and uh, in all sorts of, you know, I mean, it's possible to talk in those terms. So I don't well, think that PNC but then, prevents but put, that. Yeah, but to put this back to you, then I think, you know, the point about it being used as a shorthand for like annoying middle class liberals. Yeah, so that it, I think is, is maybe is the right, strongest. We should, be talking, we should be talking about a fraction of the PNC, really, because we're talking about academics, people in the end, and not even all academics, because we're not talking about necessarily and pretty much know, every academic <laughs> engineering professors definitely. i'm not sure are they engineering professors yeah. kind of annoying wokes not not probably in their majority mm, so the point is is no, I'm not sure social sciences and humanities academics and the worst, people in people in ngos and so anyway the point being is that you're talking about a fraction of the pmc because you're not so, talking about all yeah, doctors but, or, but well, also no that's true reply. but also the also the um you know so the fact that it's also they dominate the aspirations, the culture, the outlook, politically, intellectually, and culturally of this group as well. So I don't think the fact that we focus on part of them, um, I don't think that is illegitimate. And I do, I mean, there is the danger as this, um, as Tom L said, that it just becomes a kind of a shorthand for middle-class liberals I don't like. So that is a danger, but nonetheless, I still think it is a useful way to capture um, kind of uh, modern economies in the developed world with large service sectors and the kind of jobs and functions and outlooks that come with those kind of sweeping, um, frequently um, kind of squeezed and anxious uh, middle management types that work in the service sector. Yeah, I think the the utility of the concept of the PMC is is related to the historical conditions in which it's it's sort of re-emerged obviously it's a concept that's originally developed in the late 70s and it there is something to be explained about what is the class composition of the left that has recently kind of in the last five years seemed to to you know come come back into into prominence or certain kind of parts of the left and i think that pmc is a good is a good way to try to get at what are the material interests of some of these particularly politically active um kind of yeah and it, is, it isn't just annoying the uh, middle class liberals but there's certainly an element of that but i think one of the reasons why pmc is a is a is a useful topic a useful concept to to develop is that compared to kind of these older ideas of pet like petty bourgeoisie for example it's clear that it's not small shopkeepers um and that kind of small business part of 
of the petty bourgeoisie it's it's just it's slightly different it is the people who work in the knowledge economy some of some of them in the ngo sector you know you have to hold your hands up and say they're not all pure those are the first up against the wall sure um the ngo cadre is <laughs> definitely yeah well we'll we'll, we'll see about that but um, i guess the, i guess the point though is that it's not properly speaking a class because what we're talking about is something that's maybe a bit in an ambiguous relationship, but who are formerly proletarian. I mean, that's a point that you're making, George, as well, which is that these well, are people who used to be, in many cases, independent professionals, maybe even doctors, but who are now working in large hospitals, for example, which are, you know, kind of corp- corporate entities. Um, and I'm that's sure really about, I mean, this idea of, of them not being properly speaking a class, because if you just have two classes and the, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, then you, it, PMC doesn't add anything. But that's not sufficient for a con- contemporary class. And it never has been. Exactly. You know, it's a caricature of the earlier categories, right? Because words. before you had aristocracy of labor, you had clashes between different fractions of um, different kinds of capitalists, um, between landlords and industrial capitalists in the 19th century when sure, sure, sure. But categories the, the, were formed. The point is about so the term I mean, class. The, yeah, I mean... It's, I mean, I don't think it's invalid to talk about it as a class. So it's not kind of strictly, it's not exactly the, um, it's, a spe- it's a further specification of the larger category, it seems to me. And that doesn't seem to me to be illegitimate. Yeah, I, I think I, pre- I, I prefer think to just say stratum. You know, it's a it's a stratum or a group or a or a part. You well, know, if you, you want can to be kind of layer on your Latinate words. No, but I just said part. It means part exactly is, the well, same part thing. Is la- part is a Latinate word, actually. Um, it but says I'm sure exactly what I just said. A Germanic in fancy, alternative in fancy language. Anyway, I think it's is useful. That, does that count as irascible? Or mm, you're, you're getting there. Mm, yeah, um, okay. but I think it's 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 useful to the extent that it it provides some explanatory power, or, or I find that it does at least in the British um, context of having this kind of upper PMC and lower PMC. That there's clearly a lot of competition around um, places in the in the professional um, roles you secure membership of this this stratum or this class or this group or this um just just i don't know collection of people whatever um and that 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 has led to i would say an important phenomenon of the necessity of the lower pmc differentiating themselves culturally and politically from the working class into which they are worried they may they may fall and that i think is is a way to try and get at some of the politics, at least in Britain in the last few years. Um, so I think it's a, you know, I don't think it's the only way you can describe this group, but I think certainly identifying this group and trying to work out how they act collectively, how they, you know, have shared interests and how those are related to the economy, but enacted politically, I think that's a useful project. And it's not just Catherine who's doing that. I think in different ways, Michael Lind's work, Joel Kotkin, some of these are, you know, not, on the left, um, so we can't listen to them. Um, Paul Embry's work, all of these are, are, are I think, very useful um, for for this kind of, you know, class-based analysis of politics. Yeah, I mean, I just, I, my one last point on this is just that I think professional might just be do the job because the managerial point makes it a bit complicated because if you're talking about managers, some of them are paid in shares, you know, have stock options and therefore are, capitalist and therefore and then you're really kind of bundling together very different social types you're talking about a kind of yeah someone working um you know in a precarious position in academia with someone who's 
earning loads of money and being paid with in stock options in a large corporation. And then it starts to fall apart. Anyway, I think the last point, the really last point on this is something that Anton Yeager said to me, which I think is right, which is that if you know what PMC means, then you're probably a PMC. <laughs> Maybe we should leave that there. Yeah, well, it's necessary to do self, self-critique. Um, and no, I think it's, yeah, it's really great that the Catherine's book's been been picked up and got so much um so much discussion because I think more materialist analysis is is obviously um great for left and yeah some some really interesting I don't know if I should say this there are other podcasts that Catherine's been on that have been good so yeah Contacast one was was very good there was actually one last question really quickly on this which is uh JP says is the lumpen bourgeoisie a subcategory of the PMC does it have one foot in and one foot out of the PMC um I think the lumpen bourgeoisie, I mean, traditionally was a term used about um, in kind of colonial contexts about the native bourgeoisie um, who would ally with foreign capital or with their colonial masters um, instead of having any commitment to um, to, to the sort of the development of, of their own societies. So, so in that regard, all the bourgeoisie today is a lumpen bourgeoisie. <laughs> There's also, I mean, the, so I think in... Um... I was teaching this recently, but in I think it's in um, one of the classic Marxist texts, either in the 18th Premier of Louis Napoleon or in the class struggles in France. I can't remember exactly which, but Marx says the the um, financiers that supported the regime of Napoleon III of um, Louis Napoleon in the mid to late 19th century in France um, were lumpen. Um, and so at the bottom, it was supported by the lumpen proletariat, and at the top, it was supported by the lumpen by the lumpen bourgeoisie, um, by which he meant um, financiers because they're more kind of deracinated and detached, less connected to kind of uh, more sober, prudent, forward-looking planning that um, industrialists have to go through. So he um, he saw he kind of indicated a parallel there between um, the lumpen proletariat and the lumpen bourgeoisie. So I don't think so, mm. at least by the classical, because our listeners have been um, haranguing us on the classical element this on this episode. I guess by the classical uh, element, I don't think it would count as a subcategory of the PMC. Yeah, um, I agree with that. Um, we had then some other also kind of... Um, Difficult questions to deal with with regard to the Reading Club, um, which was number 178. So it's not the recent one, but the one before that, which we did on Deleuze's Societies of Control. Uh, our buddy, Nicholas Kiersey. Hi, Nicholas. Uh, he hated it. He called us a shower of bald-faced scoundrels for shoehorning the essay into our own hobby horse grievances against post-structuralism. Without even pausing to reflect on the fact that Deleuze is probably the least post-structuralist theorist of the so-called post-degeneration. Can I just say, I don't think it's fair to pass comment on our hairstyles in the era of lockdown. You know, like, I mean, that's really like below the belt, Nick. Well, like, well, well, where did you say anything I, about hairstyles? Bold-faced bold sounds. No, not, not bo- the bold, bold-faced. Bold-faced. It's missing a hyphen is, is the problem. But um, <laughs> also your face is bold. Yeah, anyway. Bold, um, comma-faced scoundrels. Yeah. So we have faces. <laughs> faces no, we, we don't have bold faces. We have like bold unruly heads. facial hair due to, um, due to lockdown. <laughs> we have many faces and that's maybe the problem. Um, uh, a related comment. Ron Heilbrunn uh, agreed with what Nicholas Kiersey said, feeling that we're that we bunga are fighting an intellectual culture war rather than rather than seriously engaging with Deleuze's ideas. Also, it's wrong to associate post-structuralism with wokeness. He says that Alex 
me, uh, Alex's point about the relationship between psychoanalysis and modern therapy culture, um, that basically the most potent critiques of contemporary mental health methods are rooted in psychoanalytic perspectives can be reproduced in this context. That is to say, Deleuzeanism can be an excellent weapon with which to criticize wokeness and identity politics, um, which is a point I, 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 I think I take, but um, guys... Well, so I would, you know, I mean, I have to say I haven't seen it. Maybe I haven't been the idea that Deleuzeanism offers a critique of these um, trends. I mean, maybe I haven't been looking hard enough. I think it's a bit unfair, to be honest, because we chose an essay which is, um, you know, kind of widely read and influential and it's standalone. So I think it was legitimate to kind of take it on its own terms rather than trying to kind of... Um, connect it to a larger stream of um, Deleuzean scholarship with which we're not familiar. So, um, you know, I think, um, and I think, you know, particularly, I mean, I certainly like, I was the most frustrated by that reading, whereas I think George and Alex um, both made great points, you know, so weird kind of asides that Deleuze made in the essay about saying how like surfing had become the dominant um, motif of sport in our age, um, I had no idea what that was about. And I thought Alex and George both actually drew out kind of um, what it meant in terms of how um, about structure and agency. So I thought, you know, to be honest, I thought we did a good job given that, uh, you know, it was a stretch for us. It's not our home terrain. And I think we did it justice as much as we were able to. We didn't simply brush it aside. If if what Nick says that Deleuze is probably the least post-structural theorist of the so-called post-degeneration, I mean, that might be true, but that doesn't seem to me to be such a selling point. I mean, I guess the question is, what are the insights? Are there any insights that are offered? And we took some from the essay. So it wasn't simply, um, we weren't simply writing it off. No, I think, I think we did take it seriously or at least, you know, somewhat seriously as a, as an essay with, with some useful things to say. I mean, we're not post-structuralists. We didn't discuss the whole history and the, the, the key texts of post-structuralism. I think, you know, if, if there are specific points of disagreement with our reading of Deleuze, I mean, that's, that's always useful to know. And I guess the question is, is it that we misread it? Is it that we were too tendentious in our reading or that we had, um, I don't know, we missed some of the things that could have been really useful, then that's, you know, then, you know, let us, let us know. And we can, um, we can pick up on specific points always, of course. Yeah, yeah, please do. Please do. Um, let's move on. So we had some two comments on the uh, which we wanted to discuss on episode 179, which was the hobbyist left with David Swift. Uh, firstly, Bernhard asks if the hobbyist isn't something rather like Hegel's beautiful soul. Phil? I don't, it's an interesting one. I don't think so. I think the idea of the beautiful soul is somebody who wills the ends, but not the means. Um, the kind of dirty hands problem. They're unwilling to get their hands dirty. And ultimately that it's about cultivating their own, um, their own kind of sense of self. So, I mean, I think, you know, uh, one of the great examples um of contemporary kind of beautiful soul politics is Tony Blair in Iraq, right? So he keeps on defending himself even now, you know, um, years and years later since the invasion, he keeps on defending himself by saying, my intentions were pure. Um, I genuinely wanted good things to happen with the Iraq invasion. Um, and so it's cultivating his inner kind of uh, the purity of his inner life with no regards for the consequences of his decisions and unwillingness to be accountable for his decisions because of the purity of his inner life. Um, and it seems to me that kind of idea of politics is broader than, than left hobbyism. 
So I don't think so. But I mean, you know, I'm open to talk about but, it more. I think the hobbyist wants to get their hands a little dirty, like dirty enough that they can show their friends or their social circle, look at the, the political dirt on my hands. Well, well to, to that um, point, so they, I mean, they... To, yeah, to, to, to the point, no, I was just going to bring in the next question because then you can respond to that um, specifically, which is that uh, Flicka took issue with the terminology of hobbyism. Um, for example, and here they're being ironic, Owen Jones, the quintessential professional leftist, is actual, actually a hobbyist because he's insufficiently committed to labor to a labor victory at any cost. Um, I mean, th- what they're getting at there is that Owen Jones, because he's a professional leftist, can't be used as an example of a hobbyist. So and and so Owen Jones would be someone who is getting his hands dirty, I guess, with um, with the cause of the Labour Party, um, and therefore wouldn't be really a hobbyist. George. Yeah, um, I'm. Not, yeah, I mean, Owen Jones obviously is a is an interesting example of somebody who I would I would say is to some extent a relatively recent sort of character on the left, in that he's got considerable um influence over some parts of a of a political party while being apart from it and now obviously has his um in addition to newspaper um a newspaper column uh, which I, I believe he still has um a youtube channel as well so i mean i guess what what, what i'm trying to say is that the and maybe actually this isn't all that new just kind of hearing myself say it but somebody who's who's kind of talking there um, their co-hobbyists or people who are part of their audience through their experiences of of politics in the current situation, rather than directly sort of advocating for um, for a political party. But obviously, the the consequence of this is to to, to funnel people who are initially skeptical into a specific, and now you know probably um, kind of terminated political project. Yeah, but I guess that wouldn't be hobby. I mean, I guess the idea of the hobbyist, certainly at least as David Swift puts it in his book, um, and I mean, I, I shouldn't be responding for him, but I mean, at least my interpretation of it is that it's someone who's who who kind of brings their hobby horse to the left, which is someone who pursues their kind of own pet projects because it makes them feel good. Maybe, for example, bringing in some whatever, some strange like form of activism i'm trying to think of an example which won't be offensive but like you know whatever um fucking furby furry visibility you know into kind of lit trade unions and then like that would be just the, the hobbyist left they're just doing it to back their own little kind of particularist cause rather than in some way deferring to the goals of the movement as a whole and i thought it was slightly different that it's more about performing it than winning at it well, so that too, that, that would so be part about it, right? Like, yeah. yeah, we need to defend furries. Furries are really important, blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah. Alex, you're alienating some of our listeners. <laughs> probably who, they won't say who they are, but they, uh, <laughs> and I'm not talking about specific people, but oh, they will just funny. be like, oh, and great. Another Furby, unfriend, fur, Furby? furry, unfriendly podcast. <laughs> you, you seem to know, you seem to be perhaps their informal spokesman, George, speaking for them on their behalf. Well, considering I said Furby rather than furry, if 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 I am, then I'm clearly disguising it quite um, quite well. But no, to return to the point about hobbyism, I think yeah, that that was one thing that I took away from it was the the, the importance of performativity, and that's you know it's, I guess it's another way to describe you know virtue signaling or or whatever you want to to say that there's clearly an an aspect of displaying a certain 
sort of political or, or ethical set of ideas, um, which is part of cultural consumption more than a uh, kind of ruthless um, political project that that is all about how much you can win and what you can do with the power when you do win it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I just want to say that, you know, furries are okay and welcome here. Um, we We accept all sexual Good minorities safe. are they a sexual minority is that i mean is it even a, a sexuality i don't i don't yeah really know. i don't know if it's a sexuality but like it's, anyway, anyway let's stop speak, so speaking let's of, talk speaking about of sexuality now. actually um we have episode 180 bunga bunga but gay with mark simpson and river page um everyone loved this episode um it was very popular uh dtc also commented that he's really happy that people are starting to question pete Buttigieg's sexuality <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm glad to contribute to that uh, to that sort of discourse. And uh, also Neil Martin felt it was so refreshing. It was almost unbelievable. I felt for a while now that queer politics was bullshit and just for career building and never heard any sentiment like that until now. That's great. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I'm, I'm very happy everyone liked it. Um, I, um, you know, had even been considering maybe being gay. But after this episode, I decided probably probably a bit lame probably a bit over um you know i was i was by <laughs> curious but i decided not to buy <laughs> and uh, um, that's very good yeah right so uh let, let's move on before i yeah put my foot in any further um 181 on scotland with david jamison and catboy this one was also very popular um people seem to really like it um just two questions which i thought were really interesting for us to discuss. One is, uh, and I, the first one I have no answer to, so Phil and George, please jump in. Uh, they wonder, uh, Charles Gray wonders why so many in the British establishment outside of Scotland, but in London, really, really love Nicola Sturgeon. Could it just be the pre-EU agenda, but maybe there's something deeper there. Why do, do, do why is the British yeah. political establishment like Nicola Sturgeon? I have a, I think it is as simple as the um, <clears throat> pro-EU agenda combined with the fact that she's not Alex Salmon and she's more polite and just um, more aesthetically, I was going to say aesthetically pleasing, more more kind of... PMC. More PMC, more palatable. Um, so you're combining a politics they like with a package that they, they like as well. I think it's also their opportunism. They're, you know, they don't really care about Scottish independence, Either way, but Scottish secessionism is always a useful thorn in the flesh for whatever kind of um, uh, hobby horse uh, the PMC commentary would have in any particular moment, whether it's um, their anti-Brexit hostility. So Scotland secessionism is a way to thwart Brexit um, or whether it's just a way to kind of um, criticise Westminster or the government of the day. They can always kind of talk up Nicola Sturgeon. Um, so I think, I mean, you know, I think it's mainly that, to be honest. You did say PMC. You could have said middle class or professional class there or professional yes. caste even. Um, anyway. But I chose to say PMC. You could have said stratum. You could have said yeah. Jesse. You could have said anything. Part, group. Group is not, it's group Latinate. It is as well. Faction, Shit. fraction. Can't, can't escape the Latin, Phil. Um, another question, moving on. Elias Brown um, said the coalition behind independence in Scotland seems to have the same composition as the classic 19th century European nationalist movements. That is an alliance of the national bourgeoisie with a weak working class. And as a consequence, it seems to lead to the same sorts of conflicts between the two groups with quote unquote official representation monopolized by the bourgeoisie. I thought that was quite interesting. And I think that sort of resonates from at least what we learned from David and Kat. But um, again, I'll let you guys comment. It, yeah, it is. I mean, it's an interesting point, but I don't think it's 
right. And the reason I don't think it's right is because it gives too much credit to them. Because the whole point, and this was what Kat and David were saying, is the fact that the SNP um, and the kind of the bourgeois, you know, if you want to call it that, um, push for independence in Scotland isn't really for independence. I mean, they're desperate to basically hand over um, power to Brussels and to Washington as well. They want to be part of NATO and they want to be part of the EU on terms that they're able to um, determine without the mediation of Westminster. And that's very different from the bourgeoisie, I think, of the um, of the 19th century. Um, in fact, the bourgeoisie of the 19th century, if you think of some of the classic examples like, um, uh, you know, the German bourgeoisie was timorous. Um, but still more committed to German national independence in a way than Scot Scotland wasn't. And it's and also it's, you know, famously was the so-called alliance of iron and rye, the alliance of industrialists with the old um, landowning aristocracy who um, who grew rye on their plantations in East Prussia and all that. So the timorousness came through in a different way in terms of the internal kind of class politics of Germany. But they seem to me like the bourgeoisie of the 19th century was more... Um, committed to ide the ideal of national independence and to the ideal of state sovereignty in a way that is distinctly absent in European politics at the moment. Um, and that seems to me that, that it doesn't really work in along the classic 19th century uh, mode, that we have to find ways to draw out that difference and that it probably is rooted in terms of the internal kind of class dynamics of the countries concerned. I mean, think of Syriza, right? Um, you know, uh, kind of... Uh, the the PMC uh, the Greek left PMC basically um, selling out the Greek nation as well as the Greek uh, you know new democracy the Greek but the Greek bourgeoisie didn't want independence then I mean the Greek yeah, you know they're, exactly. they're wedded to the EU completely Absolutely. yeah I mean this is this Absolutely. I mean to be to be crude about it this is the yeah the, the Scottish bourgeoisie doesn't want independence it just wants dependence on Brussels not supposed dependence on Westminster and I think that was what. Um, I think Kat put it in a really put that in a really good way that I won't try and um, recapitulate. But I think that is the it, it's that lack of I guess a lack of a national project, um, yeah. even if in an inchoate way um, that that differentiates. Well, but also unsurprisingly, just their economic interests their economic interests aren't in, in, mm. impeded by the la their lack of independence in the way that in certain national in the 19th century certain rising bourgeoisies may have been impeded from mm. that from their kind of um, good point kind of imperial yeah, arrangements that they were stuck in um so uh moving on three articles um which was the number 182 so that was from i guess two months ago um Again, stuff related to lockdowns. Uh, there's quite a bit of this. It's inescapable. Um, Mark Wallace feels that it would be wrong for the left to demand an immediate end of lockdowns, even taking into account their downsides. I don't believe in. I don't believe that giving in to business associations and fully opening is the smartest way to hold government accountable for their failures. Um, also, Sensible Captain points out that, because we discussed, I think, in, a little bit in relation to Japan, Japan didn't do European-style lockdowns, but it did close its borders to 220 countries. Uh, they say even Japanese people abroad at the beginning of the shutdown in February couldn't go back to Japan until September, which is actually quite shocking. I wasn't aware of that. Um, this politics is deeply rooted in traditional Japanese mistrust in the quote-unquote hygiene standards of the non-Japanese of the foreign um, and Daniel L. agreed with this point, actually, in reference to the Australian situation, which I guess they're familiar with, um, saying that the Australian lockdown is similarly implicated with uh, Australia's harsh border policies. 
Yeah, these are both great points. And, you know, I take them both from Daniel L and from Sensible Captain and that we were too, I mean, I wasn't quite aware of how brutal um, the Japanese lockdown was that it even deprived, you know, well, not lockdown, but border closures. Sorry, I mean, border yeah. controls. Yes, sorry. Border control in Japan was so brutal that it even forbade Japanese citizens from returning in the midst of the pandemic and lockdowns elsewhere. Um, so I'm happy to take the point because the, what the discussion was, was trying to account for how um, Japan, despite having such an elderly and vulnerable population, um, would be and would seem to be much more prone to being devastated by COVID has nonetheless fared reasonably well by comparison to other developed economies. So it was striking and sensible captain, you know, makes a very good point that um, uh, it's not as if Japan has um, gone without cost to its civil liberties and that the decisions it took also reflect um, traditional kind of um, Japanese uh, snootiness, I suppose, about the outside world. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just on, I, I mean, I take both of those points absolutely. Um, I think it's, I think it's a difficult discussion. I think the, I also find it for the lockdown discussion a bit frustrating because it has, as I've said before, and I think as we'll hear in the forthcoming discussion with Lee Jones, but basically the libertarian opposition to lockdown is justified, but it also just seems to say let's return to the status quo ante and you know pr- proposes no real solution for what should have happened and what should happen. Um, whereas endorsement of lockdown yeah. is just terrible. So um, it, it, I, I would, I, think a, we, I, I would like issue. to be able to take the discussion beyond that. And then, yeah. Yeah. I would, so I'd, yeah. And I think that's right. I would take issue with Mark Wallace here because um, I don't think that kind I mean, I don't think you could say, you know, blanket anti a blanket demand, immediate end of lockdowns in every single national context. I think lockdown skepticism in every national context is warranted, but obviously, you know, it requires ultimately judgment with respect to a national situation. But generally speaking, I mean, you know, when we, at least when I've been speaking, I've been thinking about lockdown in the British context, where I think it is warranted to demand its immediate end by now. Um, and yeah. I don't think that making that case is as being a stalking course for business. Um, if anything, it seems to me, you know, there are many businesses who have benefited from lockdown. I mean, we're living but it's small, in... But it tends to be small, sorry, yeah, yeah, but it tends to be small business. I mean, the, the, the only vocal well, opponents some, of right? lockdown but really I mean, have been small business. Yeah, sure. But I mean, the point, you know, and, um, you know, I mean, understandably, you know, they've got interests, they've got employees. I mean, you know, it's not as if... It's not as if they it should be just written their kind of opposition should be just written off in favor of Jeff Bezos because we're living in Jeff Bezos's world essentially in lockdown. So I mean I think you know it's uh, just kind of restricting it to the idea that it's simply competing economic interests and everybody else is kind of passive and hapless um, and has no interests at all, you know. Um you know I think that I mean, No no I, I just thoughts. think that it's just that the no one the latter haven't really been manifest. You know there there hasn't been a manifestation of different interests. I mean, that's been part of the problem in some ways about yeah, this, that people up have to a point, been passive. Up to a point. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of the kind of the violence and looting um, and just the sheer kind of energy and uh, anger of protests that we've seen throughout the lockdown era from BLM to other kinds of protests, even indeed to the riots happening in loyalist areas of Belfast right now. I think all of this is you know, related in different ways to the experience of um, of protracted and indefinite house arrest. So, you know, mm. I mean, I think there is expression of hostility and suspicion towards lockdown, but isn't just the complaints of um, the petty bourgeoisie. Yeah, now you have this period of um, this massive outpouring of public grief about the extraordinarily sad passing of Prince Philip at the 
taken too soon uh, only 99 where where people are are or were at least gathering outside <clears throat> back in palace in in violation of of social distancing and all these sorts of things um and yeah i mean i, I do feel like there has been a tendency to reduce the opposition to lockdowns to a um kind of narrow like let's let's get businesses back open let's let's you know let's get get the economy back up and running but obviously it's a much deeper um social problem as well and i think i well i hope that there will be some um serious taking of account of the costs of lockdown and the i think what will be some of the deep and long-lasting changes um that unfortunately will have been effectuated by this this really protracted period across the whole world but particularly in britain of of essentially house arrest yeah yeah but also of like it's been the uk very high number of deaths per million despite or because of even i don't know no probably not because of but you know despite no some of it some of it is lockdown related to lockdown because um you had a large you know a large proportion of deaths um seems to have been caught in hospital and another um significant tranche of the excess death also came from the early stages when they sent um elderly people home from hospital to um to die in care homes yeah even without rather than keeping them in hospital um you know people were sent back to care homes where they spread the disease to other elderly and vulnerable people. So, I mean, some the, of it is connected. And, and But those are very important points as well. And which uh, I think only further the point that it's not just merely lockdown, although the civil libertarian arguments are hugely important. It needs to be, the government needs to hold, various different governments need to be held to account for their full spectrum failure. Um, about which you will hear more uh, in just a second um, where we continue our discussion on with Lee Jones. Um, just uh, just a couple more here to, to deal with. Um, number 183, Acid Bunga Bunga with Mike Watson. This one was definitely not popular. Um, you guys really disliked it. Um, so I'm just going to pick out a few comments. Uh, Blake asked, why is this guy arguing for a new counterculture movement after the last one destroyed the left through middle class hedonism? Nathan Beasley said, imagine thinking that the left's problem over the last 50 years was that it wasn't engaging with culture enough. Scott Kirkland thought the idea of memes breaking up capitalist monotony was risible, um, though W saw memes as, uh, W being another listener, um, sees memes as a harmless mockery of the capitalist spectacle. Um, Bernhard asks, why did no one mention Angela Nagel's Kill All Normies? That's true. I think maybe we did, but that we that maybe got edited out of a, of a little section, which um, which we thought wasn't that good. Um, I was George. just about to say, I thought I mentioned. Yeah, I, th- I actually did think I did mention um, Kill All Normies, but obviously it got edited out yep. because it wasn't good. That's probably <laughs> why I was edited That's, out. Yeah. I should actually listen back to some of these episodes and I bet that I don't speak in most of them because I get <laughs> edited out for not being that good. Um, but I do have a serious point on Angela's on um, Kill All Normies if if. Uh, if this makes it past the the editor um yeah and this is that i think the the tr- the kind of countercultural transgressive energy that that we've seen in the last few years has been on the right has been in particularly in the alt right and this you know even in the capitol hill riots you can see how the that kind of weird hodgepodge of countercultural transgressive elements um particularly the shaman you know everybody loves him um how that was associated with the right and the left kind of was extremely unsympathetic on the whole to to that so it's not a bait i guess the you can see some ways in which a counterculture at the moment could be associated with the right i mean what's the what's been one of the most kind of countercultural 
artistic ideas it's to be a trump supporter so there's in the last few years so there's you know i think it's we shouldn't assume that counterculture is going to be a left-wing idea in the in the next in the coming decades no maybe yeah indeed that's a good point um just to read some of these other comments, um, which get into a little bit more detail, including a, a positive one too. Um, Ruben Trainer argued that uh, Mike Watson misunderstood what Fisher meant, uh, Mark Fisher meant by acid communism. According, uh, well, according to Ruben's reading of Mark Fisher, it was meant as a direct response to a left which is afraid of power. Fisher intended an emphasis on UBI, universal basic income, and automation as a means to allow for a more universal post-work society today. Um, so placing it on a more political terrain than a, uh, than a cultural one. And uh, but Paul Brewer thought, uh, or at least was a bit more positive about the episode, he felt that the collective dismissal of culture as a possible soft underbelly of capitalism might be a little hasty. I do think that the way capitalism co-opted the 1960s counterculture was more contingent than perhaps it might seem nowadays. An interesting point we should discuss. Um, culture could be the terrain on which an ideology of collective experience could be re-established rather than on the stony ground of workplace remobilization. I, I just want to comment yeah, really quickly on the, on the 1960s point. Yeah, go on. Sorry, uh, yeah, which, okay. is, which is just... Um, I think that's right. I think, I think there's a big debate about to what degree and what, what was the reason for which um, 1960s countercultural ideas became hegemonic capitalist ideas. And there's one argument that it always was from, from their very start, they were always going to be used by capitalist, that's capitalist legitimation in the future. Um, there's another one that it was like the ideas were completely perverted, taken out of context, and then capitalism appropriated them. And then there's sort of a middle ground, which is that, well, capitalism recuperated some of those ideas because they already maybe hinted at some ways that capitalism might transform, but that nevertheless, that recuperation went very much against the intentions of uh, of their advocates which i that latter one is more my my position personally and 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 it would be and it would be a, a fa it would be a reading history backwards to see to read the 60s as always already leading towards um the new tools by which capitalism will dominate us in the future i think you know it, it doesn't yeah history doesn't I'm, lead in a, in a it wasn't predetermined basically i'm skeptical yeah. about that but i did want to ask about this acid communism thing i don't i don't know if anybody else if either of you know more about it about left about acid communism being expressing or the antidote to the left being afraid of power i don't see how it, what the connection is I, I don't either because I haven't read those bits of Mark Fisher, to be honest. I assume it's to do with some utopian imaginary, a post-work one. But again, that's something which is more political than merely something that takes. I think the idea the would be, culture. I think the idea would be how do you move from a counterculture to a, a kind of dominant political culture? Because I mean, that's the thing about a counterculture is that it's always um, defined by the dominant culture and in response to it. And in general would be associated with a turning away from the dominant culture in in some ways or a subversion of it but in fact i think the idea of acid communism was more how can you make that step from a kind of countercultural instinct a, a rejection of mainstream culture on on aesthetic or or personal or kind of um, experiential grounds to a sort of political culture that allows you to to um, in some ways become the dominant culture because you can't have a a countercultural left in 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 power it seems like it inst would it would instead need to remake um culture in its in its own image or in a more yeah. kind of radically collective um one 
Well, I mean, and that's the reason we, why we did that sort of after-party discussion to try to draw out some of these themes. I think it was fairly obvious that we didn't entirely agree with Mike Watson's um, proposals, but um, but we, I think it's worth having that debate out. So, and and also that's what we we tried to do sort of at the end. Uh, if you like that kind of thing as well, let, do let us know. Um, we'll try to do more of those. Um, yeah, it makes so- me it makes me think we could have we we could get a bit deeper into some of this. An episode on Adorno, maybe somebody we've mentioned in passing. Um, there's yeah, I mean there is something here about different models of the politics of culture. Is it a kind of one based in the commodity? Is it one based in kind of a Gramscian aggregate or you're looking for hegemony? So, you, you know, I th- just think there is, there is maybe something there for us to explore in a bit more detail. All right, nerd. I was, I was going to say we should be less nerdy, but you know, if you want to be more nerdy, we should be, be more nerdy too. Uh, we're the we're the nerds yeah we're that's that that's countercultural. it's cool now to be a nerd <laughs> it, yeah um it's actually pretty dominant now i think but anyway um we're gonna wrap this up we're, just a we're couple, just a couple nerds. Of, well, yeah uh, just a couple of last things uh we did a live reading club um a couple of weeks ago people seem to really enjoy it we're going to be doing the next one on friday the 7th of may we'll put that out on patreon and announce it but we're going to be doing a live stream um, again, so please do join us. Uh, I think it, w- it was fun. It was a more lively thing than just recording the episode. So um, do let us know if you liked it. And uh, and anyway, join us for the one on the, on the Friday, the 7th of May. Um, and then finally, we also did have some comments on episode 185, which is the most recent one, which was uh, on Myanmar and on COVID with Lee Jones. And you're about to hear the second part of that just now. Um, the comments were about, again, more debating about lockdowns, Jennifer Baldwin holding that they're pseudoscience, whereas Daniel L saying, no, but they do indeed work. Anyway, point being, this discussion will carry on, but hopefully we can also try to advance it um, and broaden it out and beyond just pro or anti-lockdown um, and actually hold states to account for their failures. Okay, so that, that's what you're about to hear right now. Uh, this is us discussing uh, COVID, state failure, and so on with Lee Jones. Thanks for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Okay, and we're back here with Lee Jones talking about COVID, the failures of the regulatory state. Uh, This is uh, the bonus content to the episode that will have come out last week. Um, And so this is now being inserted here into this alpha bonus bonus. Uh, So we're going to continue. I'm going to pass back to uh, George, who's been leading this interview. Yeah, so if the first bit was recorded publicly, then this is uh, recorded privately. This is the after party to the Bunga Bunga, yeah. Privately, like... The name but also like yeah that probably works better in writing but it's still lame i mean i think our listeners they're very cerebral people they can get that well they're used to your yeah. terrible jokes by now i guess people like George. it or people say that they hate it less than they used to which is the same thing um, <laughs> these days so, trending upwards <laughs> the trend is up um so yeah so we we, we covered um in the previous episode but for us recording this like five minutes ago, um, the regulatory state um, and how that's failed. But I think to dig a bit deeper, is this a specifically British problem or is this a global phenomenon? Is it just, you know, Anglo failure or is it um, a bit deeper than that? No, it, it is deeper than that. Um, that the regulatory state did emerge, I think, first in, in Europe and North America, um, as part of the neoliberal counter-revolution, if you like. Um, 
but it has spread worldwide. And you know, this is not my concept, the regulatory state. It's been around for a couple of decades and it's, its emergence in the global south has been charted in, in quite a, a lot of scholarly work. But what I would say is that you know, every society has its own state formation. Uh, state transformation is always conditioned by, by local dynamics. And so the extent to which states have all gone in this direction, is, it, it's uneven. Um, and in some states, that, that process has even been reversed. So it's not an inevitable process by any means. But it is one that's not confined to, uh, to the UK. In fact, uh, you know, I've shown that, that this state, this kind of state actually exists in China. Mm. of all places where so it is compatible with a highly authoritarian style of governance as well uh, where the central government doesn't quite know what it wants it sets out in broad guidelines the kinds of things it wants to see happening and then it leaves it to others to work out what that means in practice and 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 work out what to do on that basis i guess it's just so striking in the in the british and american case that these um the the COVID preparedness was rated so highly mm. and has been so terrible. So you really see that. Yeah. And usually, you know, the past pandemics have been seen to be a problem of the global South. Yeah. You know, pandemics emerge in the global South. It's global South people that die from it. Their states can't cope. Uh, we have to deploy our aid. Yeah. We have to send our militaries to help them cope. This time it's been the other way around that it's us that have had to deploy our militaries in our countries because they've been the only part of the state yeah. that has worked effectively. I think though, state our, failure. Our, state I think failure. our I think our global south correspondent wanted to to, to jump in here. The subaltern <laughs> can speak now. So Alex, what, you're you're empowered now, Alex. Yeah, yeah we've mean, empowered you to, to speak as long as you say what we what we want you to. Look, Alex I mean, has the ultimate power. <laughs> you keep the talk, editor. If you keep talking over him, him he say. has no power. Yeah, this is literally not letting the subaltern speak. Like, uh, so, <clears throat> so obviously, in you know, Brazil, for example, has suffered also from you know, neoliberal straight state transformation. But I think the, the 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 what's remarkable about Brazil, of course, is that it's much more obviously and immediately a governmental failure rather than a state failure. I mean, these are decisions mm. taken at the top, um, well, or rather, decisions not to take a decision to govern by crisis rather than respond in any way to the crisis um, through, you know, Bolsonaro's attempt to distract attention, denialism, and so on. So I think even within the current state capacities, which themselves have been restricted by by budget cuts and um, a, a, a constitutional amendment to limit spending and so on, um, which obviously is really damaging to the health system. Brazil does have a national health system um, and actually has a so a large degree of success with vaccination immunization programs um, for tropical diseases and actually um, probably more successful than many Western countries even and something which has been a failure now because, well, they decided not to buy any vaccines, for example. Um, but I think the, the contrast, at least specifically with Brazil, which is a weird case, I guess, precisely because the government decided not to do anything, um, is that whereas the UK, and I think Lee's uh, article shows this really well, is that there this would have been the case irrespective of which government uh, had yeah. been in charge, I think. Whereas in Brazil, it's more immediately a governmental failure. Yeah, I think that that old distinction between state and government is one that we should bring back in. I mean, I'm I'm quite in favour of sort of old-fashioned uh, categories, really, to to try to revitalise political analysis. And this is an important one that a lot of people in this country think that it's a governmental failure, yeah. um, and they're wrong. 
I mean, they think that Boris Johnson's a lazy clown and therefore, you know, people died. Um, I mean, that's literally the level of political analysis that we have in this country. It's absolutely pathetic. Um, the truth is that if Jeremy Corbyn had won the general election, he would have inherited a state that had been planning for pandemics since the 1990s uh, and was utterly emaciated and was not in a fit state to deal with a pandemic. Uh, but it would, ironically, it would all have been blamed on him. Uh, you know, him and how useless Labour Party are and how they can't manage the state and all the rest of it. Um, because I think this is the level to which political analysis has sank in this country, that it's all about certain individuals and certain personalities. I mean, the amount of discussion about Dominic Cummings, for example, the Prime Minister's former aide and the mastermind of the, the Vote Leave campaign, uh, it's just obscene the way that political reporting, especially in this country, it just turns everything into a ridiculous uh, soap opera among certain personalities. There's no deep analysis of the reasons why things go so disastrously wrong. But is, it, is this partly because the state is less has less capacity, so there's less emphasis in an in analysis or argumentation on on what it can do or could do? So there is actually an increased role um, for the government. In this in this sort of context, well, it's a decreased role in a way because even even if you have a government that says right. pull out all the stops, do X, Y, or Z, it's basically pulling on levers in Whitehall and not attached to anything. Yeah, because the capacities don't exist. Um, when you've when you you know National Health Service spending in this country is at its lowest as a percentage of GDP, then at any time then in its first decade, which is when we were recovering from the Second World War. So uh, this is in a country that is aging, population that is aging, yep. um, where diseases diseases are becoming the disease burden is becoming bigger and more complex. Um, it is it is emaciated in some respects, but as the paper also describes, it is bloated in other respects. That this the enormous growth of the, of what I call the quangocracy that these. Uh, independent regulators and semi-independent bureaucratic bodies, these arms length regimes, they employ hundreds of thousands of people at enormous cost to the state. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, we uh, the, the slightest whiff of a pandemic and we have to close down the healthcare system and turn it into a, a COVID system because it can't cope. So this brings us nicely on to the question of lockdowns mm. and this is a question i think for for all of us to to um participate in like i think we are all to differing extents critical of of lockdown policies and probably for different ways um but what could what could have been done differently i mean we're we're at the first anniversary of as i said previously three weeks to flatten the curve in the uk um lee as the guest, you get the first the first bite at this at this cherry. I think this is a tricky one because the state was genuinely not prepared to deal with a pandemic. Yeah, uh, last last winter, um, and as I said, you know, I said with the testing system, you know, it just failed. Everything failed catastrophically. They dusted out the the latest strategy, the 2011 strategy, and contrary to what people think, that Boris Johnson was 
you know, ignoring scientific advice and so on. Actually, if you look at their behavior, they were following the plan, which was very laissez-faire. You know, for all the talk now, all the, the, the deriding of people who just want to let it rip. Um, the 2011 strategy clearly says we can't stop a pandemic spreading and it would be a waste of public health resources to try to do so. It's yeah. very clear. Um, and that's the playbook that they, they follow. Basically, business as usual, prioritizing openness and so on. But then they completely collapsed. They utterly collapsed in the face of public panic. Um, because, of course, that approach to a pandemic... Well, it arguably, there is an argument to say that this is true because the, the idea that you can't stop a pandemic, that it is potentially true under certain circumstances. And it was all backed with reference to scientific evidence. Um, mm. you know, it's a very technocratic plan, but that plan had never been run past Parliament. It had never been run past the people. There'd yeah. been no democratic participation in sanctioning that. So when it, on first contact with reality, with public opinion, it couldn't withstand, and, the, and the, the government had no authority, really, to try to say to people, look, this is the situation, we're not in a position to do this, we need to do this, this, and this. And so, of course, it faced, it could not withstand the public pressure, and so it collapsed into lockdown. So I think the, the most important point, I think, is that we have to recognise that lockdown, even if it is successful in its stated aims, which is highly questionable, because there's lots of questions about the relationship between lockdown duration and severity and the spread of the disease. But even if we think that lockdowns are successful, there's still nothing to be celebrated because they are, uh, they are a symptom of state failure. Yeah. A successful state yeah. is one that can respond effectively to the outbreak of a pandemic and not shut down economy, society, healthcare, because it cannot mobilise resources to protect its own population. So they are symptomatic of the failure of the state. So, and they create all kinds of other dysfunctionalities, which we might costs, talk about. But yeah. there's no doubt that I think lockdowns are, you know, social, uh, economic and political disaster, but they result from yeah. the inadequacy of the state. So, Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with with all of that. And I, I mean, we've been, regular listeners will know that we've been debating lockdowns, obviously, you know, since the very beginning and disagreeing, I guess, a bit between us um, about, you know, to what extent they're justified. I'm probably a little bit more, not pro-lockdown, because obviously not, but more, um, well, my, my position is that I recognize that it reaches a certain point where if the health services are being overwhelmed, that lockdowns are unfortunately necessary. And the failure is a, is a prior failure, not, uh, you know, as you say, lockdowns are a symptom. Um, but I think this discussion also always rolls back to, um, okay, well, what would you have done differently? And what I found fascinating about your paper and a specific section of your paper that you wrote with Shahar was the comparison with Korea. Um, mm -hmm. Korea um, seeming to not have had such a, a sort of decrepit regulatory state. Um, in, in fact, maybe it, it could be described as, a, to make a callback, a, uh, a disciplined flourishing democracy, uh, Korea. <laughs> Um, that, that, that's a callback to the Myanmar episode for listeners. Anyway, um, so what did, what did basically Korea do right? Because Korea seems to be a much more, I guess, less postmodernized democracy. It's one which is less given over to uh, regulation as a mode of uh, structuring the state and more one where it does things directly. Um, I think it, people refer to it as a defensive democracy. So maybe you could talk us through that. Yeah, so... Korea, because of the division of the, 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 the peninsula and 
the, the state of war that has essentially existed between the South and North for many decades, um, developed a very strong developmental state where the state took a key role in planning and developing the economy through the development of very large uh, conglomerates, the table. Um, and it, it still engages in forms of industrial planning even today. So one of the interesting things is during, uh, well, while we were locked down, the South Koreans were developing their fourth industrial revolution strategy, uh, investing hundreds of billions yeah. of dollars in new biotech industries and so on. And this is their fourth uh, I think I think I'm right in saying third or fourth um, plan for biotech, uh, as well as they were holding uh, national elections. Um, it is true to say that they have moved away from state-led planning towards a more regulatory state, uh, market-facilitating state, rather than okay. market-leading and defining state, particularly after the 1997-98 financial crisis. They did move in that direction. And so they started to adopt more and more neoliberal policies. And they see, you see there many of the same kinds of pathologies uh, that we see in the, the in Western regulatory states. Um, and you'd started to see that in healthcare. So uh, with the, the MERS uh, epidemic, the Korean healthcare system performed very poorly, especially in comparison to the SARS epidemic of 2003-04. And that was largely attributed to neoliberal reforms in the healthcare system. And so they learned from that experience by unraveling some of those neoliberal reforms and returning back to a more command right. and control style system where the state instructed hospitals to stock up on PPE, to build yep. infection wards that was financed by the state. They built a, a central uh, disease control center, which had responsibility for control they, that had its own operational budget and staff. Yep. They invested in real capacity. And at the same time, they're also investing in things like PPE manufacturing to keep that onshore rather than offshoring it to China. They were investing in biotech. Yeah. So when the pandemic came along, you had a well-resourced state system that was able to very quickly isolate outbreaks, test people, um, uh, con uh, contain the spread, and you had a domestic manufacturing sector that had lots of PPE that the government could requisition. And you had a biotech sector that was very ra rapidly able to develop quick, easy testing and start then exporting it yeah. to the rest of the world and also developing treatments for the disease as well. So precisely because you have quite a different state society and particularly state capital relationship in Korea, the, the state was much better able to... Um, to manage the outbreaks. I mean, there were some, there are yeah. some unsavory aspects to this uh, from a civil liberties perspective. One of the ways in which this works is everybody's got a government ID, which links everything together, including your mobile phone, which makes it quite easy to track and isolate mm. people. Big question marks around that. But, mm. um, you know, in Britain, we haven't sacrificed efficiency for civil liberties. We've sacrificed efficiency and civil liberties. Yeah. So that's not really a very compelling criticism of the of the South Korean case, yeah. but it means that they have been able to avoid a full lockdown. They have had restrictive measures, yeah. but they've never gone into the kind of crippling lockdowns that that we have had in Europe. It's an it's an illustrative comparison, but just to wind it back, I think I would imagine Phil has um, something to add on on lockdowns. 
So, I mean, we, we're all agreed that um, lockdown is an artifact of the failure of underlying public capacity. And Alex is right. It kind of throws it back on to us then to explain what might have been what could be different in the circumstances where public precisely where public capacity is so denuded. I suppose speaking to the British experience, then there are a couple of other things, though, which I think um, emphasize that it is uh, cumulative failure piled on top of um, of the underlying lack of public capacity. So it seems increasingly, you know, the data seem to show that there was significant COVID transmission in hospitals as well. Um, so that kind of um, piling people into hospitals was also perhaps a way in which COVID was transmitted. But then also the, um, the care homes. Um, and none of that was, you know, the decision to send um, elderly, vulnerable people back into care homes out of hospital and to pass on the disease to people who are still who are back in the care homes is another element of that um, of the death toll that we've seen in the UK, which is one of the highest of the COVID death tolls um, in the developed world, at least. So there are cumulative failures on top of all of this. I think there were, you know, inevitably some kinds of restrictions would have been necessitated um, in in response to the pandemic, particularly given the denuded public capacity that we've mentioned. But I think there were options that a more active and imaginative um, political class and and government would have been able to do, even in the face of the, um, of the basic um, state dysfunctionality. So I think, for instance, um, dissolving parliament, allowing parliament to function at a distance, failing to kind of have parliament operating, um, I think that was a tremendous mistake. Um, the kind of the casual attitude with which Parliament um, closed shop in face of the pandemic, indicating that they were inessential in effect to um, to overseeing our collective response to the pandemic and to the passing of emergency legislation. And then also on top of that, I think um, more effort could have been made to mobilise people. There was the NHS volunteer army. What became of that? Um, hundreds of thousands of people volunteered and wanted to be mobilized for various kinds of actions, which yeah. all could have been helped to expand public capacity. Yeah. You know, cleaning hospitals, um, getting ready to vaccinate people, um, being available for part of hospital administration to free up hospital staff to do other things, perhaps even training people in the basics of certain kinds of hospital medical activities. There were options. It was, yeah. Even with state failure, there were options. It was almost cruel how people's um, pro-social uh, impulses um, were not were not utilised in 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 any way. Um, I, I mean, I found yeah. that very. As I said, I think we in the previous episode, I was involved in setting up a a mutual aid group in my borough, and I was really struck uh, as the pandemic hit by this enormous surge of public interest that people wanted to step forward and do something. They wanted to help. And there was a possibility of a kind of wartime mobilization. As you say, 700,000 people stepped forward to, as, as volunteers. And then they were left idle. Um, it, I know yeah. people that never never once contacted they wanted to help they were not made any use of the state did not know what to do when all these people responded to its call for volunteers and instead it fell back on tried and trusted and failed methods 
of using outsourcing yeah. companies um, to organize the pandemic response. And it's an enormous missed opportunity, I think. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've spoken to all of you individually about uh, the TV show DIY SOS Big Build, which is a pretty niche British TV show. Yeah, they're talking to me, uh, but that's fine. I'm, I'm actually quite happy with that state of affairs. <laughs> well, let me speak to you about it now. It's, it's just a, an illustration, um, if one were needed, of the, the lengths to which people are willing to go to, to help out their community and their, and their neighbours. Um, this is George's vision of socialism, folks. So if you, if you are a listener in the UK, you can look up DIY SOS and you can see what George's vision build. of socialism is. It's not, no, it's uh, at, least building, at least they're building something. Little building, everyone has their little role in the community. If you watch it and you and you um, aren't moved by some of the episodes, you have a, a, a stony heart anyway. Um, but yeah, I think I think that is an 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 important point just to make the um the disjunction between the people's willingness desire to get to get something done to help out and the the, the demobilization that the state the response from the state in. including the local state to all that was very striking um i didn't really talk much in the article but the, you know i i can show you maybe put it in the show notes for a laugh this document i got when i was doing that mutual aid work about the volunteering pathways that existed and it, it looks a bit like the diagram of nhs governance that i put into the article yeah. this incredibly bureaucratic fragmented set of you know rules and pathways and boxes and flow charts and you think it it, it just shows how the regulatory state had become pathological. The, the big concern that we confronted in dealing with local bureaucrats was they were mistrustful of, of ordinary people wanting yeah. to help, you know. Oh, maybe they're that, a you know, safeguarding hazard and, you know, what training, what uh, regulations have you passed and so on. It, that, you know, there was no, yeah. that's why the state was not geared to deal with volunteers. It's because it treats members of the public who want to help their own community as potential harms rather than as and part of a, a problem rather than as a solution to the problem yeah. combined with a uh, mckinseyfication or deloitteification all of the mm. the slide decks and the um, the strategy but just time for maybe one final or two final really quick questions um so there's you know and you can you can take either, either one of these um that you that you want to answer but what have we what else have we learned from COVID, like what what is it illustrated, or how do we politicise the pandemic from where we are now? You can have a backwards looking or forwards looking um, question, Lee, just to, to to put a bow on this episode. I think that the number one thing I think we take away from COVID and the pandemic is that certainly the professional managerial class and its manifestation in the contemporary. British left don't value anything apart from security or what we might call safetyism. Every other value has been sacrificed during the pandemic to the cause of individual safety. The only goal has been to prevent the spread of a single disease um, and thereby minimise the deaths from this one disease. Now, on one level, you might say, what's wrong with that? Uh, what's wrong with wanting to save lives? You know, do you want to kill your granny? Uh, this kind of thing. But there are other values in society for which people historically have been prepared to die. Um, and not a single one of those seems to have occurred to many people in society. So what we've seen is the elevation of 
safetyism for everything. The very suggestion that there could be any other goal or purpose to life seems offensive to many people. So, you know, as Phil says, uh, Parliament hasn't functioned fully since it suspended itself uh, back in spring last year. We've lived under rule by decree. So democracy curtailed, civil liberties uh, suspended. Well, tough, you're supposed to suck it up. Uh, the economy destroyed, livelihoods destroyed. Well, that's just, you know, you just have to live with it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's therefore exposed something very disturbing about society because alongside this deep impulse on the part of some people to wish to be active, engaged, involved in helping in a social response, a pro-social response, perhaps the dominant response has been one of, of individuation, atomization, where we don't view each other as potential allies or comrades or as part of a collective solution to a problem, but as threats. Yes. Right, as, as threats to one another. And this is something that Peter Ramsey has written a lot about in the rise of the security state. So it is very disturbing. It's almost like we're back in the state of nature. The state cannot can no longer contain the threats to individuals. So we have to try to look out for our own security. Um, it's almost like we're back in an anarchic situation where we have to view each other as a security threat. And we must therefore retreat to the private sphere to secure ourselves. And that I think is deeply disturbing. The willingness of of all of the of the institutions of the left, the yeah. lockdown left, to to sacrifice everything in the name of safetyism and, and not to not to defend anything else, I think has been profoundly disturbing. Alex, what about you? Um, what else have we learned from from COVID, or how do we politicise the pandemic from where we are now beyond um, just ending lockdown? Well, I mean, I guess that's the problem. I think that some that polarizing around just the lockdown is and i and i hear i'm i guess referring mainly to britain and other states which have had comparable responses um which is that for all that you know i'm certainly sympathetic with you know ending lockdown in the uk now where hospitals probably are not overloaded there's it's been successful relatively with vaccinations and so on it seems absurd to maintain um restrictions longer than they need to but i think nevertheless the polarization around pandemic around, excuse me, around the lockdown, uh, bring polarizes kind of in an unfavorable way because um, f- firstly, because lots of people were in favor of the pandemic, in favor of making sacrifices, I think, for um, making sacrifices for the greater good. And that means both in terms of volunteering as well as staying at home if they felt that was what was needed. Um, and so in, in the one sense, you need a kind of retrospective politicization in the terms in which... Lee has described in terms of um, holding states to account for their failures uh, much earlier on than just the lockdowns or not. But I think that's also difficult because people, as we've said on this podcast before, people have been are kind of willing to move on um, and move beyond that. So I think what will end up having to be politicized um, will be not this kind of um, you know Monday morning quarterbacking, as uh, as Americans say, um, discussing what might have been done, um, but politicizing what flows out from the the pandemic and where we are, you know, in six months now, and and the fallout, uh, economic and social. Yeah, nice, nice to put Phil on, on to you. I suppose I'd say two things. Um, first, I think the the lockdown, I think it um, indicates. You know, so there's the you know there's been plenty of criticisms of the libertarian kind of Swedish response, 
irresponsible, um, kind of insensitive to the reality of the pandemic, um, the reality of the way in which viruses spread and so on. But from my point of view, what's most striking about the um, the political experience of the last year has been the interdependence of civil liberty and collectivity. And I think that must surely be one lesson to take away from the lockdown. So the fact that the things that matter um, that should matter to all of us, which is our collective capacities to um, to mobilize as a society, um, to uh, defend our common interests collectively, are dependent on basic civil liberties. And both of these things are necessary in order to effectively manage um, problems such as the pandemic and a response to it. And so neither the libertarian nor the kind of um, the crudely kind of socialist or collectivist response are sufficient by themselves. And in fact, our political vision requires the integration of both, that you can't have a, a functioning society, a functioning collectivity without robust um, civil liberty, the capacity even just to gather in crowds and protest needs to be defended. And at the same time, you can't have, um, you know, you can't have that, collect so you can't have the collectivity without the individualism and you can't have the civil liberty without the, um, the collective capacity of a functioning health system um, in order to enable us to continue our lives when um, emergencies occur, for instance. So that would be, that would be one major lesson. The other major lesson is, I think, um, we can never let this happen again, ever. This cannot be allowed to happen again. And already, I mean, I was a lockdown skeptic because from the start, because um, I was convinced that it was going to be institutionalized, um, much like the war and terror. And I, I feel like that view has been vindicated over the last year. And we have to gouge out the lockdown and chisel away all the legislation and expectation and um, cultural um, normalization of the lockdown as much as possible over the next year. Yeah, I think the this idea that we can't let it happen again, it's still, I mean, at least in the, the British case, it really is still, it's still happening. So I think this is, we could have had a whole episode um, on on just on just this, particularly getting I think a bit deeper into some of the the points about the state that Lee made, but um, I think also what it, people may not be aware that there's a bill going through yeah. the British Parliament at the moment, which is a police and crime bill, which includes measures to allow the the police to basically ban protests on the on the spurious grounds that somebody might experience uh, inconvenience or annoyance. I mean, I think yeah. that... Be at risk of it, it experiencing annoyance. Yes, the risk that somebody, some unnamed individual... I mean, we already have laws that uh, severely curtail the right to protest public order acts, but I think it's fair to say that the, the conditions of uh, weakened parliamentary oversight and scrutiny and the massive demobilisation of society, including heavy-handed policing of many events, um, which have only been selectively criticised by the lockdown left, um, has emboldened the state to try to make elements of lockdown a, a, a continued thing. And so you've got the sort of the authoritarian coercive parts of the state pushing for this. And then, but you've also got the medical parts of the, of the state saying, we need to maintain mask wearing and social distancing for many years to come. And so there are, yeah. there are parts of this bizarre kind of scientific and authoritarian alliance that have emerged during lockdown that are determined to draw this out for as long as possible. 
And so I think Phil's absolutely right that this has to be, you know, firmly resisted. And I think maybe if anything good comes of the pandemic or the lockdown response to it, it will be more of a lively sense of what's at stake when we lose our civil liberties. And maybe, uh, maybe that will, will come to the fore in ordinary people's minds and not just be seen as a kind of crankish libertarian thing going forwards. Let's hope so. Um, but thanks. Yeah. yeah, thanks so much, Lee. Yeah, and I understand that there's going to be protests in the UK against this bill, or there already have been. I think there were sort of already riots in Bristol. Um, yeah. So, uh, well, we'll leave this here, but hopefully uh, when, once those happen, we'll get reports on the ground from people, uh, hopefully for, uh, for a future episode. But yeah, we'll leave that there for now. Thank you very much, Lee. Catch you later. Bye-bye. George, um, stop we, sighing into the mic so dramatically. It sounds terrible. I've yes. just done it twice for yes. emphasis. <sighs> anyway, it, it, it sounds don't extremely, it. it's extremely camp. It's don't like, it. oh, yeah, that's terrible. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, you know, if that's what our listeners want. <laughs> they don't. They, want <laughs> they don't. They don't, okay? Then maybe they do. It was for them to decide. If they don't like it, they can put a comment on the Patreon. I'm sorry that my breathing offends you guys. <laughs> So I mean, it's the dramatic camp sighing. Um, well, we, he's talking about the state, like fucking us over. Like you should be, you should be sighing and should be annoyed and should be having some reactions, than... not just there in your little pod, just drinking yourself into oblivion and being like, oh, I can't wait to watch Netflix. Look who's fucking talking. I'm not fucking right. sighing. I'm filled with anger. Where you're just like, oh, this is terrible. Oh, 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 oh. We should not argue. Oh. We shouldn't argue. It's starting anyway. to sound pornographic. That is how it sounded. We've got a guest. We should wait till the guest leaves. Yes, mummy and daddy shouldn't argue. The pop shield is... Oh, it's very hard to attach to... If you have the same one as me, it's very hard to attach to the actual base of the thing. Yeah. I I prefer... I attach it to the table itself, and then I just... Have it open. Yeah, that's a bit of a challenge because there isn't anything. Like honestly, you intellectuals are so totally useless with physical things. Only at home with like well, abstract you seen, ideas. You haven't seen me handily and dexterously manage a physical thing like your mother. <laughs> uh... <laughs> mm.